The Democracy Paradox podcast is sponsored by the Kellogg Institute for International Studies, part of the Keough School of Global Affairs at the University of Notre Dame. The Kellogg Institute has a 40-year history of excellence in advancing research and education on global democracy and human development. Learn more about the Kellogg Institute, including its world-renowned visiting fellowships for scholars at various stages of their careers at kellogg.nd.edu. Welcome to the Democracy Paradox podcast. Uh, My name is Justin Kempf. This has been a big week for the Democracy uh, Paradox blog and podcast. We've had absolutely exponential growth recently in terms of listenership on the podcast, so I'm really excited to get out to new people. And this Saturday, I posted another review on the Orban regime. It's called the Orban regime, plebiscitary leader democracy in the making. It's by Hungarian authors, and I'm going to throw out the names real quick, uh, and I'm going to probably butcher them. It's uh, Andras Koroszenyi, Gabor Iles, and Attila Giulai. I encourage you to read the book. I encourage you to read the blog. I've been thinking about Hungary for a very long time. It's been on my mind. But right now, I'm extremely excited to be able to have with me for this podcast, Alexander Cooley and Daniel Nexon, who are the authors of Exit from Hegemony, The Unraveling of the American Global Order. Um, Alex and uh, Dan, I'd like to give you guys a second to just kind of Tell us a little bit about who you are. Describe, uh, describe kind of your background and how you guys came to the book. Why don't I start with, uh, with Alex? Yeah, sure. So, uh, again, Alex Cooley. I'm a professor of political science at Barnard College, which is uh, also affiliated with Columbia University. And my main academic position at the moment is I direct Columbia University's um, Harriman Institute for the Study of Russian Eurasian East European studies. Um, By training, my work is in international relations slash comparative politics. I've always been interested in issues of hierarchy, um, sovereignty, limited sovereignty. And so I've worked before on questions like imperial legacies, the politics of US military bases and basing agreements abroad, um, the multipolar politics of Central Asia, uh, and then, um, you know, more recently, this work on kleptocracy and the projection of authoritarianism abroad, which I saw happening in Central Asia. So a lot of my empirical work is in Central Asia and the Eurasian type of space. And I'll let Dan introduce his own, you know, very interesting and illustrious career. But I should also say, you know, this is these issues are um things that we've been working on for over a decade now in, in various sort of joint projects and, and putting our heads together. But, but really the impetus for the book was pushed forward by the Trump presidents, even though we have a particular argument on that. So um, yeah, that's me. Thanks for uh, having us on again. Cool. Okay. Uh, Dan, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure, I'm Dan Nexon, and I am uh, an associate professor in the Department of Government in the School of Foreign Service at Georgetown University. In fact, in two weeks, I will be just a, an adjective professor. Uh, so uh, 
yay me, I guess. Congratulations. Um, and uh, I also, so I actually got my PhD at Columbia and I was about a year behind Alex uh, at the time. Um, and my training is in international relations in political theory uh, with a kind of focus of my international relations specialization, so to speak, on kind of more historical sociology. Um, I actually spent some, a fair amount of time with historical sociologists at Columbia. Uh, and so my work uh, focused a lot on questions like how empires work uh, and how uh, empires evolve and mutate. Uh, the first book I published was about uh, the reasons why the spread of the Protestant Reformation in early modern Europe produced a kind of geopolitical, parapolitical crisis. Uh, and there my argument was very much that the kinds of states that existed in early modern Europe at the time were structurally more similar to what we think of as empires than what we might think of as nation states or national states. And so it was an argument about how transnational religious movements intersected with imperial management, imperial rule. Now, in the late 90s, I thought, I don't know where I'm going to wind up doing work like this. But then uh, September 11th happened, and people were all of a sudden interested in transnational religious movements and empires. So somehow I found into this position that I never would have expected in kind of a hybrid policy and academic school at Georgetown University. Uh, and since then, I, I've continued to work on questions of international change, hegemony, empire, what Alex called international hierarchy, hardly understood, with a side smattering of work on just straight up high international relations theory, and then a sideline on popular culture and international politics. So, All right. Well, thanks for sharing that with us, guys. I, I want to kind of mention something real, real quick. The way I, I stumbled upon this book is uh, I, was, I, I regularly read the Journal of Democracy through all of the articles. And there was an article in there from uh, Stephen Levitsky and uh, Luke and Way called The New Competitive Authoritarianism. And they are some of the most groundbreaking political scientists uh, with their work on competitive authoritarianism um, that's really kind of reshaped how people think about democracy and political science. And in the footnotes, they actually cited uh, this work, Exit from... Uh, uh, hegemony. And anytime that you are cited by Levitsky and Way, I think that that is, uh, that is truly incredible and something that's worth taking some time to think about. Uh, they've also had a recent article published in Foreign Affairs. So yet again, uh, we are talking to members of the establishment, as we talked about beforehand. So uh, a quick personal joke on that. But I want to get into the book quickly. And I want to start out by just getting to the core, you know, core meaning behind the book, just to kind of get that out of the way. Um, it, it's no secret that uh, hegemony, the, that is the idea that is central um, to your book. Can, uh, can you guys briefly explain what the term hegemony, uh, in your own words, and its importance in international relations theory? Uh, should I start with Alex or Dan on that one? Okay, Dan. So um, hegemony, as we discuss in the book, is just a fancy way of saying leadership. 
that's the sort of origin in, in the Greek terminology, according to the sources that we draw on. There are cognate concepts in other traditions. Uh, I'm going to mangle the pronunciation, but there's a concept of the ba, which was a, um, which was a, a deputized state in the Ju late Jew dynasty that actually r ran military alliances and ran kind of public order kinds of questions. So it's a very so the, it's a very old concept in Western and non-Western international thought of various kinds, uh, and it's one of the most some people would argue it's one of the most venerable concepts in the Western international relations tradition because a lot of scholars read Thucydides' The History of the Peloponnesian War as a story about uh, what we think of as a kind of hegemonic war or a power transition conflict. So within international relations, there's, a, there's this tradition, some say it goes back to Thucydides, some people point to uh, arguments made by various scholars and theorists in the early modern period, but certainly after World War II, we have a very robust set of theories and ideas that say that uh, the major engine of political change in international politics is the transition from one hegemonic power, one leading power, uh, to another in that the process by which the period of time in which a leading power, that is a power that has um, preponderant economic and military capabilities, goes into decline or relative decline, and a challenger rises up who is capable of potentially contesting its leadership, uh, there's a very old tradition that says that's the most likely scenario for great power war, uh, and it's the most likely scenario for a change in the character of international politics, the sort of rules and norms we associate generally with international order. And so you guys the way are, we understand... Oh, I was going to say, you guys do argue in the book, though, that it's not necessary to be able to have a hegemonic power system. You guys give an example of uh, immediately after the Napoleonic War in 1815 um, that, uh, that you kind of have almost a uh, structure where you have rule by committee for for quite a while before Britain kind of takes, uh, takes on a hegemonic role. Um, am I reading that correctly? So there's a, so the tradition, the, the tradition that I call hegemonic order theory, which is associated with hegemonic stability theory and power transition theory, which were the theories I was kind of uh -huh. going through more or less. Uh, those have tended to argue that the only way you get um, stable international order in traditionally in hegemonic stability theory, the only way you got an open trade regime, um, was if you had a single preponderant power who could act as a sort of poor man's world government, who could offer carrots in the form of access to its market or security commitments and sticks in the form of coercion or cut off of access from its market uh, or other types of um, threats to establish an international order. Right? To do, make international politics more resemble a domestic political system than we would traditionally understand international politics as looking. Um, there are people who don't agree with the theory, right, and argue that the, the most stable international configurations are not one with a single dominant power, but are ones with two powers, like the Cold War, the two superpowers, or ones with multiple powers, uh, like the post-1815 uh, concert of Europe system in which you had a kind of organized collusion, a cartel of great powers who were uh, setting down rules uh, and arrangements for how states ought to behave. Uh, the hegemonic stability transition, the hegemonic stability theory and power transition theory tradition says that those kinds of oligarchic arrangements are not stable. 
that they're fleeting. They tend to to result either in conflict or in um, the emergence of a dominant power. Uh, but that's certainly something that international relations scholars debate. And for us, that debate is actually kind of at the end of the day, you can get international orders through a variety of mechanisms. You can get them through great power cartels. You can get them through uh, dominant powers, through hegemons, or you can get them as sort of emergent uh, emergent uh, relations that are tossed up by the interaction of a lot of powers without necessarily any central direction. So we're very agnostic about how you get political order in international politics. Uh, I found it interesting the way that you talked about some of the pros and some of the minuses towards having a hegemonic system versus um, a non-hegemonic system just a second ago. But one of the things I noticed you mentioned as a pro is that in a hegemonic system, you can establish, you can essentially eliminate trade barriers by having a single power in charge. I find that interesting because Britain, Britain began the process of moving towards free trade around the 1830s with the repeal of the corn laws, which I would assume you guys would have said was before they took on a hegemonic role. Do you guys feel that they took on the hegemonic role in part because they led the movement towards free trade? I mean, it feels like it's a chicken and the egg example between, hey, are you a hegemon because um, because you're capable of imposing this or are you the hegemon because you've taken on the burden of these responsibilities? Well, I mean, I think you've hit on, you know, one of uh, you know, the central points for a debate within hegemonic stability theory more broadly, and scholars have taken it in different directions, but as applied to the issue areas that you're pointing to, um, trade and monetary politics, you know, it's a pretty small sample size. Usually there's a, it's a discussion of an N of two, which mm-hmm. is Britain in the 19th century and early part of the 20th century and its fate, and then the U.S. And, you know, the idea is that each of these powers sets up an architecture for for, um, managing trade and monetary politics Um, in its image. There is an accusation by many scholars that there's a kind of romanticization of the hegemon, that somehow the hegemon is acting selflessly, um, when in fact, of course, um, you know, there's all sorts of, you know, imperial block management on the part of Britain, and of course, you know, very naked Cold War dynamics on the part of the U.S. Um, But there is an interesting discussion, I think a concept I'd like to bring in that's also relevant to our book is a concept of the hegemon providing what's known as public goods, right? And the public goods type of analogy is is difficult to cleanly make in international politics. Just as a reminder, your listeners, the public goods are those in which they're non-rivaled. Someone else's consumption of the good isn't going to take away from you, um, you know, from yours. Uh, And they're non-excludable, right? You can't, uh, uh, you know, take someone else out of the equation. So actually, uh, trade is debatable whether it's a public good or not. It's more kind of, you know, a, a rung below in, you know, a club book, club good kind of thing. But, but, but I think the point is hegemons tend to set up systems, systems of rules to keep economic order going, right? Whether it's the use of the pound that was pegged to the gold standard and a kind of a commitment to maintaining the operation of the system, right, which is a fair point to make about 
Imperial Britain, um, to the Bretton Woods system um, in the U.S., which was sort of undergirded by a number of different arrangements, um, but the most important were capital controls until seven, you know, 1973. So uh, the idea on the trade front is that free trade itself is maybe not quite um, a public good, but the management of the trading system itself could be viewed as a public good. So this commitment to free trade that Britain has, that the U.S. has, with some really important exceptions that perhaps don't get, you know, their overall due, that's the idea of a hegemon. And the most famous, now we're really taking this idea, but I think it's a productive one, kind of the most famous book about this is you know, Charles Kindleberger's World in Depression, where he advances the argument that it was the lack of a stabilizer, um, the lack of a hegemon, that Britain was uh, unable and the U.S. was unwilling during the 1930s to play the role of a hegemon that led to the depth um, and prolonged nature of the Great Depression. Right? It's a very kind of, kind of clear argument. And it's been debated a lot. But I think it's useful to think of that public goods concept, again, and the role that it plays in international relations, especially countries that retain patronage monopolies. If you fast forward to the 1990s, after the collapse of the Soviet Union, it's really the U.S. and U.S.-led institutions that are setting up, you know, pretty much your only source of emergency borrowing that you have to then, if you're going to borrow, impose Washington consensus, strict kind of neoliberal conditions, source of development assistance, source of security in terms of um, security provisions. So, um, you know, hegemons dispense goods, right, whether public, club, or private. And the U.S., after a period of speculating whether it was in decline in the 70s after the oil shocks and then the 80s with the rise of Japan and Germany, after the Soviet collapse, finds itself again in this role of a goods provider and a monopoly one as such. So there's a, another, uh, you know, that element of, 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 of goods provider you know, plays an important part in hegemonic stability theory, but also in our book to, to change, to chart exactly what has changed over the last 25 years. I can just uh, add on to this for a second, which is that, so if the traditional in political economy hegemonic stability theory posited that what hegemons do is they allow for open trade, and then you alluded to there's a debate about whether you can have open trade without uh, a dominant power. And this is, you know, in the 1980s, you get books like Robert Cohen's After Hegemony, which argue that you can, in fact, maintain these regimes, even in a world without, with multiple great powers. The concept of the hegemon as, or the leading power as an actor who provides goods, uh, not just public goods, but club goods, or even private goods, gets extended into other domains. So uh, one of the kinds of goods that, that hegemons might provide are security goods. Right? And they might provide that in terms of, uh, if you think about the argument that the United States in NATO essentially provides security for Europe and effectively takes inter-European conflict off the table, makes it, NATO makes it unlikely that Germany and France will go to war with one another, for example, that the U.S. presence actually depresses military spending in the region, prevents military conflicts within Western Europe, and therefore provides a kind of more secure environment, right? greater security. Or arguments about how the United States might act, the analogy used to be as a nuclear control rod in East Asia. Um, this is a little less popular now, but the argument was that the United States essentially by 
controlling the bulk of the security architecture of the Japanese state, right, and of South Korea, kept that kept the Japanese rivalry somewhat under control and kept the Chinese-Japanese potential for conflict somewhat under control uh, in a way that the United States just left. You'd have sort of standard great power competition with lots of different powers and it would be much more unstable. Um, and the way that goods matter in these theories is not just the idea that the hegemonic order uh, works and gets more consent if it provides goods to other leaders, other states, but also the way that a hegemon actually creates order and forces its role of the game is by provision or the threat to withdraw goods, which is something I mentioned earlier. So there's a kind of dual role. There's both the idea that the hegemon is providing a good, the way that, a, that the federal government might provide a good like support for education or a good like collective defense for the United States. Um, and it's also though, uh, enforcing its vision of how international politics ought to look by also providing a series of public, private, and club goods. So saying to J Japan, you have to support, you have to subordinate your security policy to us, but in exchange, we'll give you access to our markets. Um, okay. That's now, this comes back to one of the concepts I wanted to bring up, which is something you guys talk quite a bit about, which is, um, and you guys are kind of working around it right now is the idea of the liberal world order and the way that you guys describe it in the book is actually a liberal world ordering which i think makes it much more dynamic rather than a static system that just exists now the question that i've got is um in terms of the way that you guys have it so dynamic it reminds me of the liberal world order there's a an ideal liberal world order that we think of in our minds of the way things should be. And then there's the reality of the world order, which is sometimes when the United States doesn't live up to that standard. Can you guys describe to me a little bit of what, what it means uh, for the liberal world order or a liberal world ordering per se? Um, what is it that you mean when you guys talk about a liberal world order? I, I feel like it's thrown a lot around a lot. Sometimes it means different things to different writers. Can you guys explain what you guys mean by, by, by that? Um, we'll get, sort we'll of start. debating who should talk yeah. because, um, you know, uh -huh. I talked last. Um, and I think Alex has been a little bit more coherent today. But on the other hand, this is sort of m more the stuff that I worked on in the book. So sure. broadly speaking, uh, the, idea of a the idea of a liberal international order is something that we think is really old. Um, but mm -hmm. the actual term I've recently come to understand through historians who work on the subject is actually a term that really consolidates in the 1990s. And it's actually consolidated by John Eikenberry, who is uh, an active political scientist and one of the foremost theorists of liberal order. But the rough idea, because before that you might call it the rules-based order, or you might call it the American order or the liberal capitalist system, or you might talk about the West, uh, is that uh, after the Second World War, the United States established, took the lead in establishing, there were other powers involved, you know, Great Britain, minor powers, Latin American states were important in some of these negotiations, apparently. But the United States essentially set up a, a, kind, of, a kind of set of institutions to help govern international order that were set up according to liberal principles in general, and now we would argue particularly by New Deal liberal principles uh, in particular. So if you think about something like in the 
so we think about something like open trade, for example, is something we associate with liberalism. Liberals think that free trade is good, that free trade raises all boats, classical liberals in particular, um, as opposed to mercantilists who think that you need to accumulate uh, silver and gold reserves and control trade or extractive empires that, that didn't rely on trade, but just the sucking resources out of their peripheries. So liberals are in favor of free trade, while um, New Deal liberals had a more kind of a mixed view of open trade, for example, you know, argued that trade was a good, but it needed to be, um, needed to be uh, attenuated uh, and constrained by social needs and the needs of political uh, stability, for example. So you get the United States establishing the process that leads to the general agreement and tariffs of trades, which is a series of negotiations and agreements that are supposed to keep the international trading order at least somewhat open. Um, not completely, not totally, but somewhat. Um, you have uh, in the political domain what everybody probably knows about, the United Nations, and the United Nations is set up on very liberal principles of international order. Not only does it enshrine a set of liberal values, human rights, uh, non-aggression, uh, other types of things that are baked into the UN Charter and the whole set of agreements uh, that states sort of agreed to be committed to democracy, but itself, rather than, say, have an empire dictating how states ought to behave is based around broadly the notion that uh, states ought to cooperate the same way that parties cooperate domestically. And they ought to vote on things and they ought to have uh, voice opportunities and say uh, in the kinds of rules that, that structure their relations. And if they, you do have things like the need to go out and stop a conflict, that that would be done with the consent broadly of the international community as recognized through the United Nations. Um, you also have um, institutions like uh, what becomes the World Bank system, promoted to the idea that there ought to be development, that all states, sort of if you think about it, kind of international welfare, right? That rich states have an obligation to help poorer states um, improve their economic lot, the same way that you might have social welfare policies domestically. Um, and then you have in the United States system in particular, you have a series of alliances in Europe that are built around, in, in Latin America, at least formally, that are built around multilateral principles. So instead of having bilateral alliances with client states, you have um, uh, states at least formally meet as equals to discuss security arrangements, like in NATO. Now, in practice, it doesn't always work out that way. And in practice, it could be quite hierarchical, particularly, say, in NATO's early years, where it really was a kind of U.S. show. Uh, but nonetheless, this is sort of the idea of liberal order. And if you think about it, it, it centers around three different things. Uh, economic liberalism, this idea, whether you're a classical liberal and it's completely open trade and capital mobility, you can move money around all you want, or you're a more New Deal liberal, New, New Deal liberal and this is a, kind of allows for social welfare provision, the welfare state and mixed economies, but you still have some commitment to open trade. Then you have a kind of political liberal notion and this is the idea that states themselves have to respect certain rights uh, and privileges of their citizens. Uh, and that, uh, say, uh, uh, non-constitutional monarchy is per se illegitimate, right? Democracy at the extreme, you should all be de democracies, but even if you're not all democracies, you should respect physical integrity rights. You should not commit genocide against your own people. These sorts of things that even though we could argue about how effective the international order was in preventing them are kind of baked into the basic treaty architecture, right, of international politics. And then thirdly, this, this idea about how you do international politics and that you do international politics, that you do cooperation, that you do rulemaking in multilateral settle, 
multilateral arrangements. And those are kind of the three pillars, we argue, of international liberal order. Um, although in usual discussions of international liberal order, they aren't necessarily all that well distinguished. Right, we sort of just tends tends to kind of think that these all, all are part of the same thing, and they all go together. And there's this sort of this big hodgepodge of things called liberalism. So that's kind of the idea of international liberal order, and it goes back to thinkers like like uh, Immanuel Kant and his mm -hmm. recipe for perpetual peace. This is what Wilson famously brings to the table when he help, you know, he sort of pushes for a League of Nations, which is very which is actually the term that Kant uses for his Republic of Republics that's supposed to then have collective defense and also collective security so that war is supposed to be made illegal, which it, it was to some degree by the League system and it is in fact uh, to some degree by the UN system which says you cannot engage in wars of aggression. Um, Alex, do you want to do you want to trump in, or, or Justin, well, do you have? I, I've got a question for Alex actually um, regarding this to kind of jump off of this. You had just talked a lot about public goods and how the hegemon delivers things for other countries um, that are positive. It seems to me that the liberal order, um, at least in its ideal form, has been portrayed as as a global system that's supposed to be in everyone's in best interest, and to some extent, it has been that because of the security blanket it's offered, you've had many countries that are, you have micronations uh, declaring independence, you have many nations around the world, and it's even through the economic system of liberalism has actually elevated many countries to be able to develop their own economies. Um, I guess the question I've got for you, Alex, is uh, was the relative decline of American international power somewhat a natural consequence of the liberal order and the way that it was so um, gave away so many public goods. It's an interesting um, question to consider. Uh, you know, yes and no. I mean, I think all orders inevitably face things like emerging great power challenges, a kind of you know law of uneven growth, as Robert Gilpin. You know, sort of wrote about, um, and also a kind of sort of overextension of commitments that get locked in. Uh, I, I do want to just because you you raise an important question about well, isn't this in everyone's interest? And it, it really depends. I mean, I I think it's important to acknowledge, you know, you know the the, the bloodshed and the violence that has been waged in the name of liberalism, right? Um, you know, the most recent kind of, you know, examples, the war in Iraq, um, you know, undertaken, um, you know, with the public justification anyway of sort of, um, you know, regime change fostering democratization and, and, and the kinds of ripple effects that it's had all throughout the region and, and quite illiberal outcomes. Um, so, so, I mean, I think that's important. One can also argue that a lot of the neoliberal economic medicine that the IMF and the World Bank, um, and especially in the 1990s when conditions were quite strict, um, dispersed really gutted the welfare state in many recipients. Um, you know, we have the term of a bread riot um, that comes from the IMF going for you know, subsidies on food commodities as like the first thing to sort of target. Uh, and so, you know, these, you know, these types of prescriptions are, are debatable. Um, and of course, 
the line that many critics of the liberal order, and, and this is very common in Russian uh, um, scholarship and, and analysis of IR, was that the system was hypocritical, that the U.S. would demand one set of standards and behaviors of others, and it wouldn't hold itself to those same kinds of standards. And, and, and we can find a lot of examples of whether it's sort of you know, surveillance and rights, um, you know, the treatment, differential treatment of sort of citizens and minorities, um, you know, the types of um, inequality that, you know, the U.S. sort of economic system produced, you know, and so, so we go through that. Um, I do think, though, it's important to note that even in hypocrisy, the reason the behavior is hypocritical is that it's been so entrenched as a benchmark of an international standard of conduct and the set of norms, right? That if this wasn't such a powerful norm and operating set of principles in the international system, there'd be no power to the hypocrisy charge, right? It would just be like, you know, everyone kind of giving off, you know, the norms and things that they do themselves. So, we don't mean to glorify uh, the liberal order. We think, and, and I'll, I'll speak for Dan here, he can sort of chime in with nuances and corrections, but we do feel that the, some of the central tenets of having you know, a peaceful rules-based order that's based on the respect, universal respect of individual rights um, is an important component of the liberal international system. It differs greatly with past orders. Most past orders have been illiberal. Um, and so I think, you know, that caveat to us is, 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 certainly, is certainly important. Um, now, in terms of, you know, was it inevitable? I, there's a couple of different pathways going on. And I think that's one of the things we want to do in the book is sort of show there's a story about the rise and decline of great powers and inevitable challenges. But I think there's also more hidden stories about a couple of other mechanisms, right? So we all kind of, well, set aside China and Russia and the challenge that they present. You know, another couple of stories is the rise of goods providers. Now, on the one hand, China uh, initiating the Belt and Road is about China giving more stuff, right? And then creating a system of sort of clients and crony deals for Chinese companies, taking over ports in places like Sri Lanka and Pakistan and sort of, you know, the, the, the opaque politics fostered by that. But there's another dynamic now that China's rise allows even nominally weak states to push back against liberal conditions in the traditional IFIs and ordering mechanisms and say, yeah, we're not so interested in putting down those human rights provisions on this free trade agreement. And you know what? We can go to China for an agreement um, or push back against sort of economic conditions in the IMF loan or oversight or environmental conditions. The part of the world I'm more familiar with, you actually see a lot of examples of that. Sort of countries like Tajikistan sort of um, um, uh, pushing aside the World Bank in favor of a Chinese loan that didn't have the same kind of oversight over governance in the environment and things like highway construction. So, um, uh, so yeah, we don't mean to have sort of an, a nostalgia here, but, but, but I think that's, that's an important mechanism. And the second mechanism, which I think Dan can develop a little bit more, but I'll just briefly mention, is this idea of transnational networks. So in the 1990s, most, when we said transnational networks, especially in the policy world and in international relations scholarship, we tend to think of 
NGOs internationalizing their activities. And these NGOs operated according to activist principles, uh, human rights, the environment, women's rights, campaign against landmines, um, campaigns against deforestation, right? That these were all sort of causes that united liberal activists with like-minded activists and sympathetic policymakers in other countries of the world. We almost, we went so far as saying that these networks were quite nimble, that they could outmaneuver states, that they could undermine the sovereignty of states. Well, states have really bitten back. But the point I think for your listeners that we get at in the book is that um, transnationalism is now contested. You not only have liberal NGOs, you have illiberal NGOs that are pushing uh, common systems like deglobalization or uh, having common policies of sort of closed borders against sort of uh, migrants and asylum seekers. Um, you have a sort of common cause being made about the role that organized religion should play in domestic life, um, as well as, you know, eschewing um, sort of the dictates of international agreements, such as, you know, European Union regulations and conditions and so forth. So you have a lot of contestation now in these areas in which the 1990s, we didn't see it because it was this U.S.-led interpretation of what liberal ordering is. Um, and that's made things now um, a lot more contested, a lot messier uh, than they have been in the past. But it's also, I would argue, we argue in the book, you know, a reversion to a more contested type of international politics that's actually been the norm. So, Dan, I don't know if you want to add anything to that. Or... I was just going to mention, too, that you just talked about uh, contesting NGOs. Um, that comes back to a lot of what Viktor Orban has been doing over in Hungary. And like I said at the beginning, I mean, I just, just went through um, an entire book focused on, on that and the stuff that he's doing with the uh, Soros Foundation and Central European University uh, fits. Yeah. Yeah, it's a great point. And Hungary is such a good example of some of the backsliding, right? So here is a country that's sort of the first and the first wave of NATO expansion in the late 1990s. It is a new European member in 2004. It locks itself into this set of European Union rules. And then you have Orban, who comes from a liberal background, right? Had worked with Open Society Foundations before. Uh, and starts drawing up this playbook of appealing to illiberal principles while deriving the benefits of liberal order, right? And openly talking about the importance of alternative patrons in his speeches, like China and Russia um, and so forth. And I think your Central European University example is a very good one in this sense, that this was a university set up in the 1990s, um, by some estimates, third largest endowment in Europe, right? Um, an enormously influential and important institution. And, you know, I think not only was it assumed it was always going to be there, I think the assumption was going to be that, you know, U.S. policymakers would always go to the mat for it, right? I mean, should anything sort of negative happen, it was a core interest of the U.S. to have this, this institution based on its educational system there. And what you saw with the demise, not only did Orban tackle, go after CEU, which I think was in the cards for a while, after he went through his list of sort of, um, you know, targets, it's how little resistance the U.S. put up, right? Uh, in part because of the whole kind of Soros brand 
um, but its its sort of equation with political liberalism was actually, <laughs> as it turns out, not part of the political calculation of the executive branch um, that's been doling out sort of ambassadorships here. So, so in that anecdote, I think you find a lot of pieces of the story of what sort of changed right now. Dan, I think you had something to add. I just wanted to say, you know, so what's been interesting about the questions you've been asking, which have been really good, is that they hit on various aspects of the book. Um, and there are a couple of different things going on. I mean, our overarching story is about how, why it is and through what mechanisms we think that U.S. global hegemony of the type that we enjoyed in the 90s and the early 2000s is, not come, is over and not coming back, and what we think some of the implications of that are. Right. And so that's where, for example, we have these processes, as you mentioned earlier, that are short of war by which international orders can transform where hegemons can see their order unravel uh, without anybody ever firing a shot. Right. And those are things like the emergence of rival ordering uh, initiatives, uh, China's BRI, uh, some of the stuff that Russia has been up to. Uh, that's like the effect of having new goods providers on a formal on what had been a patronage monopoly or a patronage cartel of the United States and other Western powers, and the way that gives uh, actors like Orban more leverage, more room to maneuver. Uh, he can also point to these new ordering projects as sources of inspiration. So Russia is an a model of illiberal democracy, for example. And then thirdly, this, this, this dynamic of the reversal of transnational activism from one that sort of was supporting U.S. hegemony and supporting U.S. liberal ordering efforts to one which has actually been pushing back against them. Uh, and then last of all, the sort of how we locate Trump within that whole story and Trumpism and the kinds of things you talked about, you've talked about to us before about why you're doing this now to understand what's happening with illiberal democracy and reactionary populism and things like that. There's also a series of debates that we're involved with that have to do with debates over is liberal order a thing? What is liberal order? How should we understand it? Um, some of those debates are normative. We try to not be super normative about it, uh, but nonetheless, you inevitably kind of run afoul of that. There are also broader arguments that are more targeted at academics about how we should understand international order. Given your political theory background, we can go in any of those directions. <laughs> uh, but I mean, I think uh, you know some of these threads might be um, productive to pull on a little bit more detail. So whatever you kind of you want to talk about is, is I think fair game. Yeah, one of the things I want to kind of get to is the thing that's been on my mind. And on Sunday, I went back and I reread the article that uh, Alex had written a couple of years ago about kleptocracy. It was a whole edition that Journal of Democracy did about the rise of kleptocracy. Uh, so there were a lot of different articles, but Alex had one of the lead ones about um, here. The, the title of it was The Rise of Kleptocracy, Laundering Cash, Whitewashing Reputations. But what I want to get at is the thing that was on my mind when I was reading the book and thinking about Russia, and this bothers me a lot when I think about Russia in general, is why are they doing some of the things that they're doing? And it, in international relations discussions, it always feels like there's a debate. If you read foreign affairs, there's a debate about why is Russia doing what they're doing? Maybe we should do nothing. Maybe we should lean into Russia. Maybe we should pull back. There's, there's a lot of thought about Russia, but I thought the discussion about kleptocracy was interesting because 
it feels like a key part of the liberal order has been the foundation of an international law. Uh, that kind of comes back to one of the public goods that you guys are talking about. And the question is, what would the liberal order be if Russia was given carte blanche to kind of redesign it? And so I'm curious, do you feel that Russia in particular, but maybe other countries as well, that their goal is to not completely destroy the international order, but to open up the door for even more kleptocratic behavior than we already have? Is that kind of the end game, the goal of some of this? Um, you know, in a word, uh, yes, but not only just Russia. I think actors within the West too. And I think that's, you know, that's really important to realize. I think what you have essentially now in the Russian system is um, a, you had a, a moment, um, and by moment I feel, you know, about, you know, eight, eight, nine years where you had sort of significant independence in the economy and civil society, um, you know, within Russia, uh, entrepreneurs, um, you know, trying to reform uh, the country and in Western images, but not just. And then, you know, under Putin, the slow and steady accumulation of power at the top, but the also the, the, the increasing control of, you know, um, factions tied to the state um, in these different sort of areas, whether it's finance and banking, control over natural resources and energy, um, you know, um, old sort of, you know, um, you know, industries like arms manufacturing, um, and that these controlling interests, you know, basically have an informal deal with Putin, which is essentially sort of supporting him, um, but then being able to uh, take advantage of these state-owned uh, resources and infusions of state cash in these industries, more importantly, uh, skim a lot off the top and dispense sort of you know, no favors. And, and that's been the system and the system's ossified. You see that now. So what happens in a country like, like Russia, but not just Russia, is a kind of a strategic use of the benefits of economic liberal order, right? Take the shell company, this idea that you have anonymous companies that can be registered anywhere in the world that you can then transact with domestically, right? That's kind of hyper-liberal in some ways, right? Um, but it's an essential part of the rise of kleptocracy, of money laundering, of tax avoidance domestically. And one of the things that sort of, I think, you know, unifies that article that you cited and, and, and some of the arguments that we're making is this idea that, you know, a lot of these services in the liberal order aren't illegal, right? They're totally, you know, it's totally legal for companies to provide or law firms to provide shell companies or to have political advisors or, you know, sort of accountants sort of shifting uh, income sort of offshore. These are all quote unquote legal professions, but cumulatively what they're doing is that they are empowering a kind of an oligarchic class that eventually, and I believe, you know, and I think Dan agrees too, the point has been reached where then they feed back in the political system itself, right? And then the political system itself gets um, um, you know, reconstrued, reconstructed, and, 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 and channeled in ways that furthers their interests. And foreign policy is possibly the last domain, but we're seeing some of that now. And I just want to say one more thing about kind of, 
you know, Russia and Trump, and this is on, on the back of sort of, you know, Russia gate and, 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 you know, some of the, the issues that, 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 that we've been looking at, you know, I think, um, you know, one of the greatest, I think, unwritten stories that, you know, maybe at some point I'll write up, but take a shot at is how much the collapse of Ukrainian president, um, you know, uh, Viktor Yanukovych, the global ripple effects of this, right? On the one hand, we have the immediate effects in Ukraine itself, this line in the sand that the Russians said, no, basically, we're not going to let this stand. And the Russian grievance was as much about everything that had happened in the 1990s, this kind of litany of <laughs> kind of, you know, NATO expansion and Kosovo and, you know, hypocrisy and all these things. You see it in Putin's Crimea speech, by the way, which I think is a remarkable document. Um, but at the same time, in the Yanukovych government, you see these global tentacles of a lot of them being our institutions, right? Paul Manafort being a political advisor is one. Um, but then, for example, the role played by, say, the law firm Scanton Arms, right? Uh, which settled with the Department of Justice. Um, and there's like an extraordinary proffer document there of uh, basically uh, returning uh, a fee that had been provided uh, by interest linked to Paul Manafort to basically uh, conduct a hit job on Yanukovych's main political rival at the time. And what's extraordinary about this document is that you see Skadden with, you know, an enormously influential and prestigious global law firm. Um, you see the networks that it has with political lobbyists, both in the European Union and in the U.S., and also independent relations with media, right? So these carefully sort of choreographed sort of rollouts and so forth. Um, so uh, what we see is sort of the kind of these shadow influence networks that are transnational, that ultimately are illiberal in their purpose, and that do uh, impact sort of these formal democratic political systems. Now, I think some people, uh, you know, would, would, would take various degrees of the cases. I actually don't want to get in the issue of kind of how influential this was in, in the 2016 election. But I do think the, 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 the Russiagate investigation and the Paul Manafort case and its different offshoots has exposed this kind of very systematic set of links between these entities that, yes, we normally view as sort of you know, legal providers and part of the liberal order, but um, really hollowing out a lot of the core institutions within Western liberal democracies um, um, as a result. So, um, yeah, I'll, it's a little bit of a tangent, but I think it's, it's, it's important to the discussion. No, that was great. Uh, I actually want, I've got a question for Dan, but I want to preface it this way. One of the things you mentioned, Alex, was that a lot of the stuff that they have done was technically legal. It reminds me a lot of Hungary yet again, where everything that they've done is technically legal. But there's a difference between following the law and the rule of law, where the sense of rule of law is that nobody is actually above the law, as opposed to what uh, Fukuyama doesn't go deep enough on this, but he talks about the concept of rule by law. He talks about it in reference to China and his his books on political order. Uh, but there's a big difference between just saying, hey, we're technically abiding by the law versus actually imposing the rule of law, which I think is fundamental to the very concept of democracy and fundamental to 
it'd be fundamental to the liberal order, I'd assume, but I think it's key to just having a well-functioning world order uh, in the end. But my question for Dan is Alex brought up something that really got me thinking because he mentioned, and this relates back to the rule of law, he mentioned how uh, relating Trump back to the idea of Putin, and it got me thinking about the Russia gate was trying to tie a direct link between Trump and Putin, but it definitely feels like maybe the reason why Putin supported Trump has nothing to do with any individual policy, but the general sense that Trump is an advocate, an ally in the push towards shifting the world ordering towards a more kleptocratic system, uh, that he cares more about with the corruption that's going on in the United States, uh, his, his willingness to turn a blind eye. It feels like he's an advocate for a more kleptocratic system. How do you feel about that? Does that match how you feel, Dan? Or do you, uh, or do you, think, um, or do you think I'm misreading world events? No, I think that's a really good point. So back in sort of um, late 2016 on social media, and then after the election on the kind of left-wing blog that I joined because I figured, what can I do? I'm pretty upset about things. I can write blog posts. That's something I used to do. I really kind of tried to stress that there, there's this, that what you've suggested, that there are two separate issues. There's the issue of kind of active collusion. Uh, to what degree were, was the Trump campaign and who in the Trump campaign uh, working with Russian agents, either cutouts or, or Russian oligarchs or people in the Kremlin themselves, in order to facilitate Trump's election? Uh, and, what, and so there's that question, but then there's the question that I think, but regardless how you think about that, there's the question you need to ask, which is, why would Russia, an authoritarian, uh, fairly belligerent, uh, fairly unhappy with U.S. power and position country, think that the election of Trump would be a good thing for them? And I felt like we sort of tended to focus too much on the question, the kind of narrow question of collusion, uh, and less on the what does it mean that uh, the Putin regime thinks Trump's good news, right? And I think it's more than just the fact that Trump is himself enmeshed in kleptocratic networks. Let's be honest here, the Trump, camp, the, the Trump organization has been able to persist and make money because they've served as a money laundering actor uh, for overseas, uh, uh, for as a money laundering actor for Russia, for Russian oligarchs, for other things. And that's just something more broadly that Alex can speak to if you want to hear about it, about the luxury real estate market. It's very thinly regulated. So it's a really good place to, to, to um, stash your cash. You can even let properties uh, depreciate in value or can overpay for them because the whole point is to have a safe haven for them if something goes wrong in your country. So you're paying a premium uh, often to um, just park your assets there. And that's great news for, for the luxury real estate brokers. And it's great news for developers because there's all this cash coming in that um, really they have to do very little due diligence on, uh, particularly when it's run through four or five different shell companies and, and other kinds of brokers. Uh, so he's enmeshed in those networks, right? They, they know him and they've dealt with him and he wants to do deals directly in Moscow, right? And we know now he was pursuing the Moscow Tower deal well into the period of time he was still running for president. 
Um, so part of it is that he is essentially very a kind of very familiar kind of actor if you're a post-Soviet kleptocrat or post-Soviet oligarch. Um, and that it's not just him. We mentioned Manafort. There are a lot of people in his orbit who are enmeshed in this system uh, and making a good deal of money of it, out of it. Um, but there's also the issue of what, what Trump was pitching on foreign policy terms when he was um, going after what we can look called the infrastructure of American power. That is um, the core alliance system, the, um, the multilateral commitments of various kinds, uh, the U.S. giving aid and assistance to other countries, all these things that Trump was targeting and saying were horrible, horrible deals uh, and he wanted to disrupt were things that the, when the Russians look at the world and they say, what does the U.S. have that we don't have? I mean, one of the things we have that they don't have is a much larger economy. But the other thing we have is a huge network of allies in military bases, uh, in force projection capabilities that derive from them, and uh, that, that, that has actually locked Russia out of a lot of places it would like to go, which Russia is then desperate to kind of wedge apart and divide. Uh, and they've done that often, actually, by supporting far-right movements that are anti-NATO, uh, or at least you know, anti the sort of liberal order. They've done that by... Um, playing footsie with people like Orban, who sort of complicate things within the EU and NATO. Um, they've done that uh, by supporting extremist groups, um, uh, sometimes materially, sometimes just by trying to amplify their message and attempt to kind of sow division within the core of the Western order. Uh, and so Trump is part and parcel of that kind of thing, right? A disruptive agent who might undermine some of the advantages that the United States has accumulated uh, since the Cold War and the end of the Cold War over Russia. Um, so they looked at him in terms of his role in these kleptocratic networks and thought, this guy's, this guy's good for us. They looked at him in terms of his goals for U.S. foreign policy uh, and said, you know, even if he's not able to do what his people are promising, uh, which is have a new grand bargain where Russia and the United States and the other great powers cooperate on areas of core interest like suppressing Islamic terrorism uh, and then, or Islamist terrorism, whatever the term you want to use for it, uh, but also, you know, kind of have spheres of influence and all those good things. Um, even if he doesn't bring that home, he's still going to um, uh, basically uh, weaken core U.S. assets in international politics. Um, so there was sort of both those sides of it. And then there was the bonus that even if he didn't win, you know, uh, this could be, this again could disrupt, undermine uh, U.S. cohesion, U.S. political cohesion, having somebody who was so polarizing, who was so demagogic, running for uh, president. So, yeah, I think that there are a bunch of reasons why Russia looked at Trump as a good bet. And I think if, if, if you believe, and I think the evidence here is really dicey, but if you believe either that Russia uh, is the thing that put Trump over the top, right, and you, certainly there is good reason to believe that the, that the email dumps uh, through WikiLeaks, right, is the cutout. Uh, and uh, it may have actually made the difference in the election, given how narrow it was. Um, then you'd say that for very little money, you essentially got to, got to, to drive the U.S. System, international system, the U.S. Uh, sort of uh, international infrastructure, security, economic infrastructure, the brink of implosion uh, for a very small investment, and an investment that didn't require you to could be sending tanks into NATO or anything like that. So I'd say for them, it was, it's been a pretty good deal. Um, if that, and, and I, and, and yeah, I mean, more broadly, right, this is, um, 
this is where I always get nervous because we don't want the book to be an overtly kind of partisan exercise, but it is when we start talking about Trump that I think we draw these connections that some more conservative readers have kind of balked. But I think you just got to face the fact that Russia wanted Trump in and they wanted Trump in because they saw him as, as a, somebody who could undermine uh, U.S. liberal order in the small L, broad American value sense and could undermine the U.S. power position. I, to speak up for your book, the, what I thought was really nice about it was the way that you guys were able to begin with a very clear sense of theory behind what you were discussing in terms of, in terms of hegemonic powers. And then you went through step by step in terms of the different aspects of it, of how we were experiencing that. Like the chapters read exit from above, exit from below, exit from within, exit made in America. So for those who are thinking that this is some far left uh, international relations theory, it's, it's very well done. It's very well put together in terms of things that I think appeal to the left or the right in terms of just basic ideas of how does the world work. Uh, something that just kind of just puts things very easily. And the Oxford University Press books are always very easy to read. It was, um, it went through some very deep ideas of theory, but not in a way that somebody who's an undergraduate can't grasp, in my opinion. Uh, but well, thanks. I do, I, yeah. I, I do want to, I actually want to say something now. I know I like to talk as <laughs> an academic, uh, but you know, the fact of the matter is that if you don't like, um, liberal order, right? If you're an American and you look out and you say you don't like all these trade deals, uh, you don't like U.S. forward deployed tr forward deployed troops, you don't like U.S. making the United States making security commitments to Western Europe or to countries in Asia, to some some of the countries in Asia that that Trump's been disruptive towards. Uh, and if you say we do think that Russian cultural conservatism is the kind of model we like. Um, we do think that the international order promotes these, you know, LGBT rights, that they undermine the traditional family. If you believe all of that stuff, you should welcome, you know, this kind of de facto and, and sometimes formal alliance among uh, various reactionary movements globally. Um, in fact, the United States uh, helps to fund that. Um, a lot of our dark money is, is implicated, probably is more important in some respects than Russian funding for European far right movements. Um, but I think what I say to my conservative friends is you have to understand that if you also want a United States, which is a global preponderant power, um, then you have to recognize there are trade-offs here uh, and that uh, you will in the process uh, undermine a lot of U.S. Uh, international strengths. And I will say that, that both Alex and I are on the progressive side of the equation in the sense that we don't even terribly like the way that liberal order on the economic front has evolved over the last few decades. Right? We would like to see a return to a more uh, kind of New Deal style international order, one which is less neoliberal, less market driven, that makes it harder to accumulate this kind of wealth that makes it harder to move money around through shell corporations. Um, we think that this is actually a, a bad thing in many respects. And so, you know, we need to be careful that we distinguish between kind of different variants of liberalism that can be better or worse. And then the role that liberal order itself has played in U.S. power independent of that. So I just wanted yeah. to get that on the table. Yeah, but it's also fair to say that um, you guys describe it as a liberal world ordering. So over time, what we understand to be 
the ideal can actually change and that we're trying to match what the circumstances are with the ideals. So just because, hey, the United States has done this in the past doesn't mean that that is exactly what the ideal is. And that comes back to the point Alex made before about that's what makes the whole idea of hypocrisy so so um, um, so salient is because there's an ideal form that we're trying to achieve and we oftentimes don't live up to it. Uh, so, I mean, I, I agree that you guys aren't embracing certain concepts of the liberal order, but at the same time, it's a little bit of a uh, fluid concept at times, I would say. Uh, and, and you guys define it as such, uh, being very dynamic. But I want to get to the idea of Russia and China. Um, you guys discuss and are very explicit that there, in both your foreign affairs article and your book, that there is an implicit alliance between Chinese and Russian interests. And that's not a new concept. I mean, you, you can read about it in The Economist. You can see it in a lot of different places. You guys go into very specific detail showing the way that they vote at the UN, um, how closely their votes are aligned, how closely a lot of things are aligned in terms of their uh, behaviors. But and you guys go out of your way to kind of note how everybody's predicted that this is going to break down, but it never, never seems to break down. My question, though, is um, I struggle because I find that, that China and Russia seems to have different directions that they're trying to achieve. It feels like China is trying to co-opt the world order and become a global hegemon, or at least at least on par with the United States, it feels like Russia is trying to disrupt it. So sometimes it feels like the interests, like they're aligned today, but it definitely feels like at any moment, if China continues to rise, that China is going to feel like Russia is getting in the way. Uh, do you guys feel that that is something that is inevitable to come, or do you guys feel that that there are stronger interests that are going to keep them aligned much longer? Um, it's a great question, and it goes to the heart of a lot of, you know, uh, a lot of the arguments that we make. And, and also, I think some evolution in thinking about this. I think the way that you kind of framed it is very helpful, this idea of Russia being a disruptor, being more kind of the outwardly revisionist power that kind of just wants to break all the rules and, and kind of, you know, um, you know, initiate, accelerate these debates about why is that the U.S. is in charge and, and so forth, whereas China has played over time a more kind of reassuring role, um, has benefited from so many elements of the world order, especially sort of economic liberalism and the institutions that promoted it. And even in setting up parallel institutions like the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, has gone out of its way to talk about these being complements as opposed to substitutes for liberal ordering kinds of institutions and architectures. I will say this though, because I too used to be of the mindset, and I mean, I still am that in, in classic material interests, you do see tensions and classes, clashes, right? Especially in part of the world I study sort of Central Asia where China has increasingly encroached and not even so much China does economics, Russia does security. China does everything now. China has a military base in Tajikistan, right? China is working intense security cooperation with all the Central Asian countries. And um, time and time again, 
when actors in Russia posited a red line, for instance, China would have the Belt and Road and Russia would have the Eurasian Economic Union and there would be difficult negotiations, right, to merge the two or coordinate the two. None of that happened, right? So why isn't it happening? Why isn't Russia waking up and saying, you know, hang on, <laughs> you know, this backyard of ours looks a lot smaller than it used to be. And the simple fact of the matter is it's exactly the asymmetry in power, right, that prevents it from doing so, right? That Russian policymakers feel that there is more to gain from reassuring China, backing China, placating China, and getting its own backing. And the Chinese have made a few concessions, whether it's sort of Crimea, not vocally sort of, you know, vetoing this clear case of separatism and annexation um, um, to then you know actively shaping uh, things that both countries don't like um, whether it's R2P and kind of Western intervention norms to more and more questions about who controls the financial system and the whole sanctions regime um, is something that, that the Chinese now who are being sanctioned um, are now coming to the Russians and like, hey, what's been your experience with this? Are there kind of workarounds that we can coordinate on? So the tension is there. It's not a formal alliance. It's probably not ever going to be a formal alliance. The Russians are fond of saying the Chinese, they don't like, of course, the asymmetric power argument. And they don't like being called China's junior power, but their retort is always China has no friends. We're China's friends. Even China's clients aren't friendly to it. But we have worked very hard to reassure the Chinese that we are going to support it on these ordering kinds of issues. And what I see is the pivot to a world of kind of U.S.-Chinese strategic rivalry. This will suit the Russians just fine. Not because that they're going to triangulate, but because this is going to give even more ammo for them um, to be able to support China and just say on questions like, for example, Xinjiang or, um, uh, you know, the BRI or you know, whatever it is that actually these issues complicate Russia's position, um, that they'll be able to say, no, we back you. So I, 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 I don't think a world of U.S.-Chinese rivalry is going to pry Russia apart. I actually see it. Um, on the other side, and especially because a lot of the glue that sticks together is the subject of the book. It's the ordering itself. It's not hard-nosed kind of material strategic interests. Um, uh, but that's, that again, that, 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 that's an evolution um, analytically that I've undergone. Um, but I think, you know, recent events sort of speak more and more to that this is going to be, a, 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 you know, a kind of permanent set of um, uh, um, relations between the two. I find it interesting that you mentioned that China has no friends uh, is kind of a response that Russia makes. Uh, looking back to Samuel Huntington's uh, classic work um, in terms of the uh, civilizations, in terms of the world, um, it it makes me, it's interesting because Clash of Civilizations that he wrote, it's interesting because he always envisioned that there'd be this regional hegemon and yet, I think as the world is kind of shaped, the proximity you have to somebody who has a lot of power oftentimes creates even more conflict. 
rather than having them become your ally, oftentimes you become a little bit more weary of that country because they have so much power right on your front door. Um, I want to, um, we're getting, we've been talking for a while and this has been absolutely amazing. Um, I, I definitely appreciate you guys both taking the time to be able to talk to me uh, on the uh, on the podcast. I, I've got another question that I kind of want to conclude and, and I'm hoping that Dan doesn't get mad at me on this one because it's, it's related to uh, American politics. I obviously I'm American, so I, I think a lot about U.S. foreign policy, or I mean U.S. Uh, politics. Uh, the podcast has a large American audience, although it, it has a surprisingly large international audience. The uh, but nonetheless, the United States is always something that people think about because of its because um, of its its role in terms of the world. The question I've got for you, and and Dan, you might be the best one to kind of answer this would be. Uh, it feels that the United States right now, especially under the Trump presidency, is acting in a way that's contrary to our interests, especially from a foreign policy standpoint. Uh, why do so many Republican voters embrace a foreign policy? Not just, not just accept it to go along with Trump, but there are many, not all, but many who embrace a foreign policy that undermines American interests. How, why, why is that a situation that even exists? So foreign policy, so, so the way I like to talk about voters, you, you are probably familiar and you have discussed or you will discuss in the future this argument about low information voters, right? You've probably heard this, that American yes. voters don't know a lot about policy, so they rely a lot on cues or they rely on partisan cues often, particularly in an era where partisanship is starting to feel a bit like ethnic identity. Uh, and certainly that's how a lot of my comparative friends who study Eastern Europe and Central Europe feel now about what's happening with partisanship. Um, uh, I actually prefer a term and I'm, that um, is associated with somebody, I can't remember her name, which is really embarrassing, um, but she left, she went, she left uh, academia and she did micro-targeting, a really terrific kind of political, uh, political um, uh, consultant. But uh, she said, you know, it's not about low information voters, it's about information specialization, right? So people, uh, have a limited amount of time to devote to learning stuff. Uh, and you should not expect them to learn everything about everything. So most people are more interested in things like uh, there's like sports leagues or, um, or, uh, or cars or cooking or any number of things, right. That, that motivate them. And they could, they know a lot more about those things than your average politician does, right. Or average high information political knows. Um, uh, so people specialize in information because there's just not enough time like to learn everything about everything. Um, and we know this is true in domestic policy, that people rely on cues, they rely on heuristics and shortcuts to make sense of complex policy debates. It's even more so in foreign policy. I mean, it drives American uh, international relations specialists crazy, but people don't really care about foreign policy very much. You know, outside of some very specific uh, groups that have, say, co-ethnics abroad, right? So Armenians might care a lot about foreign policy in terms of Armenian interests, where you have uh, some people in my community, the Jewish community, who, who care a lot about, about U.S.-Israeli relations. Dan, and Dan, that. you're breaking my heart. Nobody cares <laughs> about foreign policy. Right. So people don't care. No, I think it's not just an issue that motivates people. It's complex. It's far away all these sorts of things. And so generally speaking, voters tend to follow the cues of the leadership of their party, right? So if the Ameri so if, um, 
so if uh, the Democratic president, at, presidential candidate Biden gets up and advocates a bunch of things in foreign policy, generally Democratic voters will say, well, he's our guy. This is what he thinks. This is what we should think. Right. Same thing on the Republican side. Right. We thought for a long time, if you looked at Republican politicians, that was there was a very deep set, very hard line position on Russia. 2016, I volunteered for the policy shop at the Sanders campaign. And one of the things I worried about with Clinton was that I thought she might be too hawkish with Russia. Right. Irony of ironies. Right. So. Um, but this is just, you know, we see this flip to a large degree. And one of the reasons we see it flip is that the leader of the Republican Party is advocating certain things. So a lot of Republicans are going to go along with that. Uh, a lot of the apparatus that supports the Republican Party, Fox News, the broader media apparatus is going to shift in that direction. Uh, he has lost on some of these issues, right? I mean, he's lost often on Russia because still that's very much within the political establishment in the Republican Party is a very strong anti-Russia bent, right? And that's why he's lost these arguments and lost and had to sign legislation increasing sanctions on Russia. But by and large, voters are gonna shift. You saw this really interesting shift with um, trade policy, right? Where Democrats had traditionally been more skeptical of trade, Republicans had been more free trade. Once Trump became this big campaigner against trade agreements, Democrats moved in the opposite direction right now overwhelmingly are supportive notionally of free trade. So this is just how these issues tend to play out. Um, and so it doesn't surprise me that your average voter who is going to care about a whole slew of other things, both political and non-political before they get to foreign policy, are going to put the time and the effort to try to figure out uh, things about foreign policy beyond right, what, what those cues are sending. Um, so that's why. I mean, I think uh, people just generally follow their party position on foreign policy. Um, uh, that's what the mainstream voter does. It's easier than trying to parse out the complexities of, I mean, I couldn't even tell you about the politics in 80% of the world, right? And this is my job, right? Now imagine uh, those other things. So at that level, it doesn't entirely surprise me. There's also a broad story, right? If you do look at the story that the United States is um, being free road upon, Right, that our allies are taking advantage of our security commitments to not have to invest in their own defense is true. Right? I mean, Germany spends, what, 1% of its GDP on defense. The German armed forces are falling apart. Right? Their operational capacity is very, very low right now. Uh, you know, their air force, apparently some large percentage of those planes can't fly. Um, so... It's not, so yes, it's true that uh, our allies are living on our defense expenditures, right? That we are underwriting their security. Trump's right about that, right? In fact, every president has pushed for more burden sharing, just most more subtly, less hand-handedly in ways that are less disruptive. Uh, uh, so there are plenty of uh, presidents who have pushed for bigger deals around bases. I mean, the in the 60s, uh, the Denver, you know, Johnson, uh, and I think Kennedy as well, pushed very hard for trade concessions uh, uh, as in, with the implicit or explicit threat that the U.S. might consider pulling troops out because we had, balance, we had these terms of trade and balance of payments issues that had to be, we thought had to be resolved. And the only way to do that was to, you know, get the Germans for, to buy more American goods. So this is a perennial thing, right? Um, and it's sort of, it's hard to make the case that says, you know, look, it's actually kind of a good deal for us that these countries aren't spending so much on defense because it gives us more 
control over security issues involving those countries because they're dependent upon us. And so in that it also prevents conflicts that we might have to be get involved in the future. The story I told at the beginning about you know, the, the old story, NATO's job is to keep the U.S. in, right? Russia, Russia out and the Germans down, right? The, the goal was to prevent Germany from becoming a new threat by tying it in to NATO uh, command and NATO security architecture. And that still functions. Um, it probably has depressed uh, the risk of militarized conflict in Europe. Uh, made the EU possible, for example. So it's not, in, it's not like these arguments are by themselves crazy or wrong or even are such a break from prior arguments and prior positions. It's the sort of gestalt of them that's really particularly disruptive. And the fact that, that Trump doesn't actually, I think, understand or buy some of the ways in which um, these deals might have been good deals, right? Um, that's so disruptive. The other reason why it's so problematic is, again, it's a complicated argument. It's the fact that the United States created a lot of these arrangements when we were much more powerful relative to our allies in other countries in the world, you know, where we could lock in our interests much more effectively uh, than we can now, where we are relatively weaker and relative, you know, where countries do have other options for where they can go. Um, you know, in the Cold War, uh, liberal democracies were not going to go to the Soviet Union for obvious reasons. Right. So we were the game in town. Um, during, at the, after the end of the Cold War, we were the only game in town. We were the only country, country capable of providing uh, uh, really robust security commitments <laughs> and security guarantees because we could go bomb the shit out of anyone right, if we wanted to. Um, so now it's, so yeah, it is true that these deals uh, come with some costs for the United States, but it's also true that they come with a lot of benefits, and it's not clear that any deals we could make now would be better for us. And that's a hard sell, right? It's a complicated argument. It rests upon a whole set of historical facts and nuances in these relationships and assumptions and arguments with the way international politics work that I don't think are necessarily ones that everybody should buy. Right. People in my own field don't buy some of these arguments. Uh, and they're not ones that I think, um, they're not necessarily the trade-offs that everybody, even a very informed voter, would necessarily make. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, definitely. Well, I, I want to take a second to thank you guys so much for being here. Um, I, I've kept you guys for quite a while, and I appreciate uh, the time that we've been able to talk about these issues. Uh, I want to encourage any listeners uh, to visit my website, www.democracyparadox.com. Uh, I've got over 60 reviews of different books on political science, mainly with an emphasis on democracy, but sometimes on international relations as well, uh, that you can be able to take a look at, be able to get a, you know, look into, think about some of the books that are available, but then also hopefully take the time to be able to read some of those uh, classics as well as new books that are available as well. Uh, and please subscribe to the podcast. Uh, every week I plan to be able to put out a new, uh, new edition, um, new interview, where we talk more about issues that I think are extremely important to, uh, to, to the world and uh, that involve political science, democracy, uh, and many other topics. So thanks so much uh, for being here, Alex and Dan. Um, do you guys, uh, like, uh, in terms of uh, going forward, should we expect you guys on the Biden team uh, if Biden's elected? <laughs> well, thanks for having us. Um, uh, I am definitely not on the Biden team right now. Um, 
I, I did briefly uh, help out with the Sanders campaign early on, but I left for various reasons and I haven't been involved since. Um, I, I, I'm really just joking on that one, yeah. but uh, it, it, it'd well, be... We're, we're in a business where we have a lot of friends in various positions of, of, uh, of power and influence in the Biden campaign. It was a little odd sometimes to think I went to grad school with that guy and you know now he's uh-huh. potentially next in line to be national security advisor or whatever. Uh, but I do think that one of the things that's interesting about this is that the Biden campaign apparently put a moratorium on adding people to their policy shop because they have so many people. Oh, wow. And part of that is that Always when you're out of power, people are hungry for jobs in a new administration, and they think rightly or wrongly that getting in on the campaign is going to help them get those positions. But I think it's also a testament to the way in which uh, a lot of Democrats um, and Democratic people in the Democratic foreign policy establishment uh, uh, really think that, that we have an enormous amount of work cut out for us if Biden wins in terms of repairing some of these relationships uh, and getting what we would think of as being American foreign policy on track. And frankly, what a lot of Republicans think would be getting American foreign policy on track, Republican officials, even if they won't necessarily say that publicly. Well, I I will tell you this, that both uh, Alex and Dan, their names continue to come up in the literature. Uh, Keep your eye out for them. Uh, Thank you for joining the Democracy Paradox podcast. Uh, I will, uh, you know, we'll be back next week. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Justin. Thanks again. Thank you. The Democracy Paradox podcast is sponsored by the Kellogg Institute for International Studies, part of the Keough School of Global Affairs at the University of Notre Dame. The Kellogg Institute has a 40-year history of excellence in advancing research and education on global democracy and human development. Learn more about the Kellogg Institute, including its world-renowned Visiting fellowships for scholars at various stages of their careers at kellogg.nd.edu.